Uh, this morning's Bible reading is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, and that's found on page 826 of the Church Bibles. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Today, as you uh, already know, um, we uh, come to the final chapter of Galatians, the final um, the last in our series, which is uh, on Galatians 6, which is just read to us. And uh, last week, when I was talking on the end of chapter 5, I concluded with a question about the Christian life and asked, um, you know, if someone asked you to describe what living the Christian life was about, what would you say? I surmise that, for, that most of us um, might say uh, something about obeying a set of commands like the Ten Commandments or following the teaching of Jesus, say, on the Sermon on the Mount. And while both of these options, of course, are essentially good, they're not bad options, um, it would set such obedience um, in, as far as Paul is concerned, in some ways in the wrong context. For the Apostle Paul, the answer to that question could simply be described as living... Whoops... No, let's go back again. Right, too much on one thing. Living by uh, the Spirit. Rather than indulging the desires of our sinful nature, the flesh, the Christian life consisted in seeking to live by the Spirit and producing the fruit of its love, joy, peace, patience, as we saw earlier uh, in the kids' talk. I sought to illustrate that tension by the two circles you see um, up on the screen. The world of the flesh, left-hand side, 
world of the spirit on the right hand side I said all humanity begins from birth in that side of the flesh dominated um, by the sinful nature which turns away from God but those who belong to Christ have been freed from the dominion of that power they've moved to the right they've moved into the world of the flesh of the spirit where of course they've been forgiven forever through the cross of Christ and empowered to live for God through the gift of the spirit but of course that process is not yet complete it will be complete one day it's not yet complete now we all know that the flesh still hangs around um, we struggle against its temptations hence the overlap of those two circles drawn there uh, on the screen uh, to illustrate that but also the dotted line yes it is dotted <laughs> the dotted line to show that we no longer are in the world of the flesh we really are in the world of the spirit and, uh, and the transfer that's taken place. What Paul does now in chapter 6 is to continue this theme, but now apply it um, in some very practical ways. That was just read to us. It's not an entire... He's not talking about everything he could think of. He's obviously talking about certain things that relate to the Galatian church and to us. Um, and also what he does is in this process, he sums up the letter as a whole. So that's why I've called um, today um, the marks of the spiritual life. Living by the Spirit, what are some of those practical ways that that works out in the marks of the spiritual life? You have an outline in your leaflet as to uh, where we're going. And you'll notice in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, straight away, um, that we still are on the theme of living... Um, by the spirit because he says brothers if someone is caught in a sin you who are spiritual should restore him gently now you who are spiritual are not you who are the super people in the congregation who are spiritual he simply means you who live by the spirit it's another way of saying the same thing and so that signals to us that his instruction here is just continuing on that same theme that he was talking about at the end of chapter 5. Now, there are many instructions in this chapter, and sometimes they're so diverse that some writers have concluded that it's just an entirely random thing that Paul just sort of um, has made up for one reason or another. I can't see how anybody looking at Paul's epistles could ever really include that, conclude that that's the way he thinks. But I think if we look more carefully, we can see that there are three key themes under which we could group the rest of the material in chapter 6. They occur in three main paragraphs of the text and sum up the content of the paragraph. The first mark, then, of the spiritual life um, is that believers carry each other's burdens. Verse 2 reads, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. You see, living by the Spirit, as we saw last week, is a corporate thing, not just an individual thing. 
It's about a spirit-led community, an outpost, what I called an embassy of God's kingdom here on earth. So it should be no surprise that in our struggle against the flesh that Paul expresses um, here a spirit-led community as one that carries each other's burdens. And particularly, the burden here, he specifies, is one of helping a brother or sister in the struggle with sin. So as he puts it in verse 1, no, let's go back to there. If someone is caught in a, a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Gently. Gently restoring uh, a person caught in sin. The emphasis here, you see, is not so much on the sin itself, but the restoration, and particularly the method, with gentleness. You see, gently, in the translation, is literally in the spirit of gentleness, which makes clear, I think, that gentleness he's referring to is that gentleness of the fruit of the spirit that is mentioned at the end of chapter 5 in verse 22. And that which Jesus described of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when Jesus said he was gentle and humble in heart. The fact that Paul sees such restoration as part of carrying a burden for a fellow believer reflects the, the mutual responsibility, friends, that we each have for one another. I well remember when I was in my local church, uh, then in Sydney, and I was only a fairly young Christian, so it's a long time ago, and uh, a man who had a very, turned out, had a very significant effect, influence on my life was preaching. He was a guest preacher, he wasn't the normal uh, minister at the church, and he stopped at one stage and he said, I can't remember what he was preaching on, I just remember what he said. He said, I want you to look to the person beside you, both ways, if you like. And he said, I want you to know that it's your job to make sure that that person gets to heaven. It's your job to make sure that that person gets to heaven. I've always remembered it because in our sort of very individualistic, if you like, society, it's so countercultural to think that way that we have a responsibility for one another to make sure that we're on board with Christ and living for him. We have responsibility to carry each other's burdens. And while, of course, that can be applied at a whole lot of wider levels, um, particularly here, Paul points out, one of the ones that really matters when we see a brother or sister who needs help um, because they're maybe being overtaken by a struggle with sin and headed down the wrong path. Paul says such acceptance of our mutual responsibility for one another is a fulfilling of the law of Christ. Again, in verse 2, uh, he says that you, if you do this, you carry each other's burdens, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And 
This is quite an unusual phrase, really, if you think about it for a moment. Quite unexpected. Because hasn't Paul, virtually through the whole of Galatians, been at pains to show that uh, people's, that God's people are no longer under law, but live by the Spirit? Why would he introduce a phrase like the law of Christ? That occurs nowhere else in his writings. In fact, nowhere else in the New Testament. Well, I think he does it here for two reasons. First, he wants to make clear against his detractors that belonging to Christ and living by the Spirit is not a recipe for lawlessness or license. Indeed, it was Jesus himself who said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20, I've got to figure out which way I go here. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, Paul is only just following what Jesus said. Second, by referring to the law of Christ, rather than the law of Moses, as the Judaizers had done, he signals a completely different understanding of the law. A law that has nothing to do with a system of commands many of which had to do with externals like circumcision, foods you can't eat, clothes, particular clothes you have to wear, the length of your hair, all sorts of different things were incorporated externals in the law. But rather, the law of which he speaks has to do with inward character. That could be summed up in just one principle a principle that he has already referred to just a few verses earlier in Galatians 5.14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. In other words, for Paul, the law of Christ equals the law of love. That's what he means by it. We have an obligation as a corporate community. It is to serve one another in love, carrying each other's burdens, especially when someone uh, might be straying away from the faith. However, there's one thing we need to watch through this whole process of carrying one another's burdens, uh, which I've not referred to yet, but takes up quite a bit of this first paragraph. In the second half of verse 1 um, and verses 3 to 5, we read these words. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one must carry their own load. In other words... With any process of restoration, the thing we have to be careful about is the danger of false pride. The danger of false pride. How easy it is, friends, to think we are better than others, only to be ended up being tempted by the same sin. There are many examples of Christian leaders, only even in recent times, who heavily criticised other Christian leaders for being found out in some sin, often it's a sexual sin, only later to be exposed as having the same problem. False pride, 
The pride that comes when we compare ourselves with others and think that we possess a superior spirituality. But as Paul says so tellingly there in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You see, rather than compare ourselves to each other and feel good about, oh, yes, I think I'm better than that person, or that sort of thing, uh, Paul says that what you should do is just test yourself. See how you measure up to what God really requires. Um, Because in the end, it is true that each one should carry his own load. He says in verse Now, this is not contradictory. Carry each other's burdens, each one must carry his own load. All Paul is saying that even though we do have to carry each other's burdens, in the end, each one of us is still responsible to God for what we do, how we live, and how we behave. So the first mark here, then, of spiritual life is to carry each other's burdens. Paul outlines the second at the end of the second major paragraph. But I think it captures all of verses 6 to 10. And that is, when I get to it, to do good to all people. He says in verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Carrying burdens has particular application in the believing community. Now, Paul here then widens the spiritual life to life generally, a life of doing good. But the believing community is still given a priority. The believer has an obligation of doing good first and foremost, especially to those of the family believers, he says, to those who belong to that family. Now, most people today would do just about anything for family. I don't know whether you've realised, but many writers have pointed out that family today in our society is one of the great idols that we actually worship in lots of different ways. Not, it might be what we say, it's not always what we do. And we see it sprouted forth often in the media quite a bit. But friends, the real believer's family is right here. This is the real believer's family. This is the life of the family that we will have for eternity. And so Paul says the prime obligation that we have is to do good to one another. Now this is where I think the link with verse 6 fits in. You'll notice in your Bibles, if you read it, that verse 6 seems to be out there in the middle of the two paragraphs, just in one sort of line. Or anyone who receives instruction of the word must share all good things with his uh, instructor. And it's out there on its own in some ways, the way it's been put, because writers have not been sure why it's there and which part of the chapter it goes with. Does it go before? with verses 1 to 5 and carrying burdens, or does it go after with verses 7 to 10 and doing good to all? Well, I'm persuaded that the mention of sharing all good things in the context of doing good to all, especially the family of believers, 
makes it a specific application of this principle. And Paul mentions such an obligation a number of times in his um, other letters. It is a basic obligation to provide for the needs of those who instruct us, to share all good things, Paul says, with those who teach the word. Now, almost every writer, I think, uh, commenting on this particular passage, recognises that Paul's meaning here is financially, is primary financial. All good things means financial, uh, as in a number of other places. So we want Stephen, for instance, and Mike and their families to be able to concentrate on teaching us the word of God and not be distracted from this task. After all, when you think of it, what more important task could there be uh, than the health of God's people and the teaching of God's word? The importance of this obligation for us as a congregation is shown by the stern reference to reaping and sowing that Paul follows this with. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. One who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Yes, we are saved by faith in Christ, but true faith, genuine faith, always works. As James makes clear, if faith does not work and do good to others, it is really dead faith. But the marks of the spiritual life sown by the Spirit is the life of doing good as we have opportunity, Paul says, as we have opportunities, the people we come across, so that we can look forward to reaping, not destruction, but reaping from the Spirit. And what do we reap from the Spirit? He says, we reap eternal life. So we're to carry each other's burdens, and then we're to do good to all people, as we have the opportunity to do so and especially to the family of believers. But thirdly, as Paul sums up the heart of his great concern for the Galatians, we are to boast only in the, cro in the cross of Christ. Again, you'll see that this comes in the middle of the paragraph, that closing paragraph from verses 11 to 18. In verse 14... But I think it sums up the whole section and much of the burden of the letter. So Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So much, friends, of what we're encouraged to do today is to boast about our own achievements. Is to boast about self-fulfillment, to have pride in ourselves. I well remember, you'd have to be old enough to remember the old National Mutual ad, which used to say, the most important person in the world is you. The modern equivalent, I think, in some ways in ad advertising is the, what is it, the L'Oreal ad? 
you deserve it. Of which a number of ads have taken that sort of line and, and thrown it in. You deserve it. Well, you know, from a biblical point of view, you don't really. You don't deserve it at all. All you really deserve is the judgment of God and eternal punishment. But thank God that because of Christ and his death on the cross, this is not what we receive at all. Boasting in Christ, however, is not just about what we say, but very practically also in what we do. And I think this final paragraph reveals three implications of what it means to boast in Christ here, in the way Paul uh, talks about it. The first one um, comes, I'd call it, standing firm in the freedom of justification by faith. Paul, of course, has already stated this in chapter 5, verse 1, but I think it's also the implication here in his final paragraph. Note verses um, 12 and 13, first part of 12 and 13. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Not even those who are circumcised obeyed the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised so they may boast about your flesh. You see, the Judaizers uh, want to class the Galatians and their churches as part of them. They want to boast about them being on their side and part of their group. They want to put them under a system of law, Paul says, that they themselves can't obey. How stupid is that? Why? Well, Paul says that they do so because they want to avoid persecution. I'll go back. Because they want to avoid persecution. What persecution? Well, in this case, it's probably the persecution from the Jews who'd rejected Jesus as Messiah. So they don't want to join the Galatians because they want to uh, avoid persecution. The implication is that boasting only in Christ then will mean accepting the reality of worldly persecution. Paul himself notes in the second last verse, in verse 17, he says that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. And for many Christian believers today, the same is also true. Some of you I know were at the CMS dinner this week, Thursday and Friday night, we were at Thursday night, and... um, A speaker at the dinner this year spoke on the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted. People spit and lie and insult you for righteousness' sake or for me. And he was speaking about the fact that we often talk about being blessed in Australia because of certain things that we have, whereas he was contrasting that with saying that Jesus says we're blessed and we're persecuted. And he illustrated that from so many places that he's in contact with all around the world. Blessed are the persecuted. Then I don't know whether you know that this week was a fairly interesting week in the media 
on the whole gay marriage question. Um, in both uh, the ABC's program called Media Watch and in Q&A. On Media Watch, Paul Barry, who is the presenter uh, there, who, uh, who is somebody who actually supports gay marriage, was still complaining that the media is incredibly biased against anybody who has an alternate opinion. And he sees the persecution, if you like, of people who don't support gay marriage as quite extraordinary in our community. It's only, though, what we ought to expect, friends. Then, on Q&A on the ABC this week, there was a number of topics, one of which was equality in marriage as well. Um, I think it was the Labor senator was going on with some vitriol about people who don't uh, support gay marriage. And Brendan O'Neill, who's a regular col columnist, a journalist, regular columnist in The Australian, has his own magazine, I think, called Striker Online, um, replied and really got stuck into this guy greatly, saying how terribly he thought it was um, the way people were being persecuted for holding a different view. Many, many Christians were rejoicing uh, in that fact. But it seems to me these, comment, these things are not going to go away. This is exactly what's going to happen in our society as it moves further away from Christ. And if you put your hand up, you can expect often great criticism and persecution in return. So I want to ask you this morning, um, since I know it's certainly true of me sometimes, do we fail to boast only in Christ by staying silent sometimes? Because like these Judaizers, we don't want to be persecuted. We want to avoid the persecution that we know will come. It's natural enough, but it's no mark of the spirit-led life. A spirit-led life means we need to accept the reality that to stand up for him and to boast only in him will mean that we will be persecuted. Well, then the final implication of boasting only in Christ comes in verse 15. It is truly, I think, one of the great statements of Paul's writing. Uh, yeah, there it is. And indeed of the New Testament, I think. Verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. So this third implication of boasting in Christ I call in the outline living out the truth of a new creation. You see, Paul is not here referring to a new heaven and a new earth like we have in other books of the Bible and other places. Rather, he only uses this phrase, new creation, in one other place in his writings. It's in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. 
You see, new creation in Paul's language refers to the change Christ brings about by his spirit. In 2 Corinthians, it refers to the individual believer. Here in Galatians, though, it's corporate. It's referring to the local church, which I called last week the embassy of the kingdom of God here on earth. We know the reference is corporate here by the words that preceded. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. Circumcision, you see, is just a shorthand way referring to the Jews. Uncircumcision, a shorthand way of referring to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says, the externals that divide and separate us mean absolutely nothing when it comes to knowing God and belonging to God's people, being part of eternity. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what colour skin you have. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what gender you are. As believers, friends, it's all completely irrelevant. Nationalism, so prominent in our world today in many ways, is completely irrelevant. You know, Aussie, 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 that may be great for the cricket. We hope, anyway. But it has nothing at all to do with the Christian faith. Nothing whatever. What counts, Paul says, is a new creation. What matters is living out this incredible reality that God has brought about, where people from everywhere, every place, every colour, every shape... I'm particularly glad about that one. Male, female, young, old, are brought together in the bond of family because of the cross of Christ. That's what really counts. That's what really matters. And this week in community group, as hopefully all the community groups know, we've been looking at this book, this series, along and this week in session four it just happened to be on community and I noticed that it mentioned Galatians 6 a number of times um, in it that you uh, might remember and in our community group we were discussing one of the questions that was in it and uh, it was a, a quote that came about from Don Carson I'd like to just read it to you, his statement. He says, The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And the question was, do you agree with this um, assessment? So we began discussing this uh, in our group when one of our number, who will remain nameless, um, came straight out and made it clear that he would never associate with us or be part of our group. were it not for Christ.
I think some of us were a bit shocked at that. After all, we're all nice people, aren't we? We're a bit shocked that sort of uh, he would say something like that. But of course we knew that he was absolutely correct. You see, some of us here today might meet or might have met through sport, some kind of sporting club or whatever we're involved in. Some of us might have met uh, through a mother's group, through play group, with our children, through school, other groups like that. Some through work, maybe some through various events, an ethnic club, who knows. But I can guarantee the only thing that brings us together today as family now and forever is the cross of Christ. For whom Paul also calls in verse 16 the Israel of God. And what I've been referring to the last couple of weeks as the embassy of God, the kingdom of God here on earth. Let's pray, friends, that we may be worthy here at TNE and as we move to Golden Grove as well in our church plant, that we may be worthy of that wonderful work and calling to carry each other's burdens, to do good to all people, especially those who are part of our community here and the wider family of believers, and boasting as we do only in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What really counts, what really matters, is that we should be part, that we should live as the embassy of God's kingdom on earth, testifying and modelling to this new creation, this new humanity that God is creating for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this great letter of Paul's to the Galatians that we've been studying over these many number of weeks. Thank you for the wonderful truths it reveals, the wonderful acceptance we have with you through our Lord Jesus and his death on the cross and the wonderful new community that you are creating in local churches all around the world. We thank you for this community that we are a part of here. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out the calling to which you've given us, the calling to live by your Spirit, not to indulge the flesh, but to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our community and as we reach out to others. Help us to carry each other's burdens, to recognise the mutual responsibility we have for one another. Help us, Lord, to be people who do good to all as you bring them across our path 
but especially to each other here. But most of all, Lord, we pray in total counterculture to our world that we may be people who boast only in the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.